You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. Greetings, fellow believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. Today, I want to talk about the word explicit and how it relates to the rapture of the church. Now, before the pre-trib rapture theory surfaced in the late 1800s, an explicit post-trib second coming and rapture was the common understanding in the church community. Since then, the idea of explicit has come into question. But just because a different idea has come onto the scene of Bible prophecy does not invalidate the fact that a post-trib rapture is explicitly taught in the Bible and has been believed for centuries. Now, in this episode, I am not comparing the traditional post-trib rapture theory with the pre-wrath view. That is a different issue. I simply want to establish what I perceive to be the teaching of the Bible, that Christ's second coming and the promised rapture of the church will occur explicitly after the last days period of tribulation administered by the beast, or as some designate him, the Antichrist. The fine-tuning of the post-trib view into what has come to be known as the pre-wrath view has been and will continue to be presented in other episodes here at Bible Prophecy Daily. Now, this is a quote from the rapture question by John Wolvard. The fact is that neither pre-tribulationism and post-tribulationism is an explicit teaching of Scripture. The Bible does not, in so many words, state either, unquote. And this is a quote from an article by Walbert in the 1985 journal from Grace Seminary. Quote, both pre-tribulationists and pre-tribulationists and post-tribulationists are confronted with the fact that the scripture does not expressly state either view. Now, this statement itself is only partially true. It is a fact that pre-trib is not an explicit teaching of Scripture. It seems that since the pre-trib rapture view is most definitely not explicitly taught in the Bible, our pre-trib brethren want to assign the same uncertainty to any post-trib view. However, I propose that it is a fact that the Scripture teaches that the rapture will, in fact, occur after the tribulation. Now, prior to the public presentation of the pre-trib theory of the rapture, the view of the church was basically post-trib. But of course, if a person turns over enough stones in the riverbed of religion, he will find evidence of almost anything. Crazy ideas, error mixed in with truth, light dimmed by darkness, the written text of scripture distorted by man-made tradition, assumptions, and superstition. But the presence of any particular idea or resemblance to the truths of Scripture does not establish the validity of that idea. 
Now, sorry if reciting a list might be boring, but please indulge me. I'm sure most of these names will be familiar to my listeners. All of these men held to a post-trib view of the rapture. John Bunyan, 1628-1688. Matthew Henry, 1662-1714. Jonathan Edwards, 1703-1758. John Wesley, 1703-1791. Adam Clark, 1762-1832. Charles Finney, 1792 1875, Charles Hodge, 1797 to 1878. We can add to that list F.F. Bruce, Matthew Henry, George Ladd, C.S. Lewis, J.B. Lightfoot, Sir Isaac Newton, R.C. Spruill, Charles Spurgeon, B.B. Warfield, Charles Wesley. Now, why? Did these men of faith believe in a post-trib rapture of the church? Because as they saw it, it was indeed explicitly taught in the Bible. Now, let's talk about this idea of explicit. Merriam-Webster Dictionary says that explicit is an adjective, means fully revealed or expressed without vagueness, implication, or ambiguity. So what language is required for something to be considered explicit? Are either of the following two statements required to fulfill the condition of explicit? The rapture will occur before the tribulation. Or the rapture will occur after the tribulation. However, the word rapture does not occur in scripture. So, of course, the two statements cannot be found. And in that sense, Dr. Walvert is certainly correct. Now, the word rapture is a theological designation based on the Greek of 1 Thessalonians 4.17. The Greek word caught up is harpazo, and it's translated into the Latin with the verb rapere. And that's where we get the word rapture. At this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, we have an explicit statement of a fact. Quote, then we who are alive, who remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds for a meeting with the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. A meeting is a gathering. Which is what Paul calls it at 2 Thessalonians 2.1 where he wrote, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him. So the fact of a future gathering of believers to meet Jesus in the sky was clearly taught by Paul, and that cannot be denied. Where did Paul learn this explicitly stated truth? Well, the commonly accepted date for both Matthew and Mark is around 50 AD, give or take a few years. And Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians in about 55 AD. So according to tradition, Paul would have had access to a written record of the teachings of Jesus. Later, when Paul wrote the first letter to Timothy, about 10 years later, 
there was a body of revealed truth that had been circulated among the churches and was designated as sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ. First <clears throat> Timothy 6, 3. Now, Paul also made reference to what he had received from the Lord himself. Now, in general, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Galatians 1, 12. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 3. That by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. And Ephesians 3, 5 as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So, uh, whether in the form of the written Gospels of Matthew and Mark, or simply the verbal communication from the teaching by the disciples, what Jesus had taught to the disciples and to Paul had been and was being taught to the churches. Well, what Paul learned is what Jesus taught. And what Jesus taught is recorded in the Gospels. Jesus taught the explicit promise of a sky gathering on two recorded occasions. Once in the lengthy Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and 25, along with Mark 13. And once in the upper room at John 14, 1 through 3. Mark 13, 27 records it this way. And then he will send forth his angels and they will gather together his elect out from the four winds from the farthest end of earth to the farthest end of heaven or the sky. And this is exactly what Paul taught at 1 Thessalonians 4.17. It's the same sky gathering. Again, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Then we who are alive, who remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds for a meeting with the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. In these two passages, there is nothing vague, nothing assumed, nothing implied, and nothing unclear, and nothing different. Now, also in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus made several other explicit statements. By the way, the second coming mentioned in this entire discourse by Jesus refers to his one and only second coming. That means that every factor mentioned in the chapters will occur in reference to that one second coming. There are not two second comings in the Olivet Discourse. For that matter... There are not two second comings in any of the teachings of Jesus. So first of all, at verse 29, after the tribulation of those days, that is an explicit time period. It is the explicit time period that will begin with the abomination event of verses 15 through 22. Number two, they will see the Son of Man, that's Jesus, coming on the clouds of the sky this is a specific future arrival of Jesus that, by the way, is also explicitly promised later to the disciples by the angels in Acts one uh, eleven, when they tell them uh, after Jesus ascended up into the sky in a cloud, 
they told the disciples, Jesus will come in just the same way as you watched him go up. That is in the clouds. Now, this is an explicit, observable event. Number three, he, Jesus, will send forth his angels and they will gather together his, that is Christ's, elect. Now these elect ones are not the elect of Israel. This is an explicit group designation. It is Christ's elect. That is, those who are in a specific relationship with Jesus Christ. It refers to all who are in a salvation relationship with Jesus and with God the Father through faith in the salvation promise, both Old Testament and New Testament believers. Now, the adjective for elect is eklektos. It's used ten times in the Gospels, basically only seven. It is used one time for Christ as the chosen one of God at Luke 23, 35. And it's used six times for someone who is in a salvation relationship with God. Matthew 22:14. many are called, but few are elect. Luke 18, 7, shall not God bring forth justice for his elect ones? In the rest of the New Testament, the word is used 11 times for believers in Jesus. It's also used one time for Jesus himself and one time for God's angels. Never is it a designation for the nation of Israel or for ethnic Jews. It's always referring to the elect who have trusted in Christ as Savior. Number four, they will gather out from the four winds from the farthest end of earth to the farthest end of heaven. Or the sky. That's at uh, Mark 13, 27. This is an explicit type and location of gathering. It is a sky gathering. It is not a gathering from one location on the earth to some other location on the earth. And of course, this is exactly what Paul referred to at 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, for meeting with the Lord in the sky. Number five. It will occur at an unknown day and hour, Matthew 24, 36. But that unknown day and hour will occur specifically and explicitly after the tribulation of those days. Yes, this speaks of a kind of imminence, but it is only imminent in the context of after the tribulation. Number six, Matthew 24, 40 and 41. This is an explicit statement in the Greek. It says one will be taken and one will be left. The verb taken is paralambano. It means to take something or someone to the side. It's used also uh, by Jesus at John 14, 1 through 3, when he says, I will come again and take you to the side of myself. The Greek readers would understand the meaning of the verb, and they would also see the connection to John 14, 3. Now, where is there implication or assumption in the above explicit statements? Well, as uh, I mentioned before, there is only one second coming of Jesus. And the disciples understand this when they ask the question in Matthew 24, what will be the sign of your coming? 
they had only one coming or arrival of Jesus in view because Jesus only taught of one coming or arrival. He had mentioned several times that he would come again. And all of the passages taken together indicate that he always had one and only one second coming in view. Now, let's take a look at Matthew 16, 28. Jesus told Peter, James, and John that they would basically see a vision of Christ coming in his kingdom. Uh, the phrase coming in his kingdom refers to the second advent presence of Jesus in resurrection glory along with his holy, mighty angels, when he comes to administer the authority of the kingdom of God on the earth. Luke records it as see the kingdom of God, and Mark records it as see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. These are not contradictions, but all refer to the one glorious arrival and revelation of Jesus at the day of the Lord. Now, we know that Jesus was talking about his one and only second coming because Peter tells us at 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18, quote, For we did not follow cleverly, <laughs> cleverly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his magnificence, unquote. Peter knows of only one second coming. And he mentions it again at 2 Peter 3, 4 in the complaint from the mockers. Where is the promise of his coming? And then he directly relates that one second coming to the term day of the Lord at verses 3, 10 through 14. He clearly indicates that it is that one and only second coming that we believers should be looking for and be ready for just as Jesus taught at Luke 12:40, You too, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Yes, Jesus mentioned only one second coming, and it is the very same one and only second coming that is taught in the rest of the New Testament. At a very important passage, Titus 2:13, Paul calls it the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of the great God and our Savior, Christ Jesus. So now, what must be removed from Scripture to deny an explicit rapture that will occur after the tribulation? In order to deny that this is explicitly the teaching that Christ's elect will be gathered to meet him in the sky, at the specific time that he stated, certain things have to be removed from the passage. One, remove the fact that Jesus is teaching his disciples privately on the Mount of Olives. The disciples will live and minister as the foundation builders of the church and representatives of believers of all future generations of the church. They are not representatives of the nation of Israel. Jesus called them out from the nation of Israel. Number two, remove the fact that the ones gathered are Christ's elect, that is, believers of the church, and claim that they are the people of Israel. Number three, remove the fact that it is a sky gathering, not a gathering to a location on the earth, 
Number four, remove the fact that paralambano is a gathering type of word and not a word of judgment. And number five, remove the fact that Jesus taught about only one second coming. Now, on the other hand, what must be added to scripture to deny an explicit rapture after the tribulation? In order to deny that explicit teaching of Jesus, several ideas need to be inserted. One, it must be claimed that Jesus taught the disciples as representatives of the nation of Israel, and what he taught is for Israel and not for the church. Number two, it must be claimed that Christ's elect refers to the Jews who are scattered throughout the world and not to believers in Jesus. Number three, it must deny the literal language of Mark 13, 27 and claim that the gathering is an earth gathering, a gathering of Jews from one earthly location to another earthly location, such as the land of Palestine. Number four, the meaning of paralambano must be ignored and changed to mean taken in judgment. And number five, a dispensational assumption must be imagined into the text that claims the church cannot be on the earth during the 70th week of Daniel. So now what's my conclusion? The event that Paul calls our gathering together to him is explicitly taught in the Bible. This then, our gathering together to him, or perhaps simply the gathering, is the official and biblical term to designate what Paul described at 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 17. It is based on what Jesus explicitly taught at Mark 13, 27, which says he will gather together his elect out from the furthest end of the earth to the furthest end of heaven. It is a heavenly or a sky location. The theological and accepted term is the rapture. That's fine. Jesus explicitly stated that this gathering event or the rapture will occur after the tribulation. There is really no explicit teaching in the Bible that indicates otherwise. The fact remains that the rapture event is clearly a post-tribulation event. Traditionally, prior to the late 1800s, this was the common understanding within the church community. However, the traditional post-trib view has many obstacles when correlating all of the pertinent end-time passages. The pre-wrath view overcomes those obstacles and presents a clear harmony of all the prophesied end time events. So I hope you all have a good day. May God bless. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. 